Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, soulmates, plenty to talk about on this Tuesday, but we first want to welcome you to Fox Soul's Black Report. Now, we're following the latest on changes coming to AP Black History courses in our country. And we'll also talk a little bit about how blacks and Mexicans are being displaced in Palm Springs uh, that is California. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm the Cordeline Corte, <laughs> plus the nine-year-old genius mm. who's making headlines and the help singer and actor Tyrese is seeking. They're the stories that impact our people. We're going to bring you our news, our views, and our voice. So topping our headlines, we begin with some very breaking and sad entertainment news. That's right. We're really sad to report that we've just learned that Harry Belafonte has died. Hey! The New York Times is reporting the 96-year-old died at his home on the Upper West Side in Manhattan this morning. According to his longtime spokesman, he died of congestive heart failure. During his career, Belafonte broke racial barriers in the 50s with his folk music, some of which you heard there, and went on to become a major force in the civil rights movement. And I'll tell you, it's just, you know, heartbreaking. We know we can't live forever, but our legacies do. And, and we do them justice by living in those legacies and talking about the memories. I'm just glad that I'm in a space, you know, being in my early 50s, that I remember, you know, these people, I know exactly who they are, so I'm not going to get them all mixed up with mm -hmm. the wrong picture, you know, as yeah. a journalist. But you've got um, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, Cicely Tyson, um, Ruby D, Ozzie Davis, that whole generation mm -hmm. who've gone on to be with the uh, ancestors. I think when I think about it, I think one of the only ones left may be uh, Quincy, Quincy Jones. He's on the younger end. He's maybe about 90, so yeah. he's on the younger end of that generation. But what a powerful, powerful generation and legacy he has left. And speaking of legacy, I mean, his legacy as an artist, his legacy as an activist mm -hmm. is intergenerational. That's right. Uh, he's really created a model. Uh, his ilk have created a model for so many uh, celebrities and notables mm -hmm. uh, that are much more conscious about how they use their platform mm -hmm. to speak up and speak out on issues related to social justice and yeah. economic justice. And, and reading uh, the New York Times piece was a beautiful piece about the life and legacy and activism of Sidney Poitier. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know uh, how deep his relationship was with Dr. Martin Luther King. Yeah, he it was, was like a consultant. It was mm -hmm. brotherly love yeah. personified. That's right. Um, and not only did he invest in the movement, mm -hmm. uh, but he also took out an insurance policy mm -hmm. on Dr. King's life in the name of his family mm -hmm. so, they so they would be taken care of mm -hmm. after his assassination. Yeah, very, very forward-thinking, very active. You always, you know, saw him in the pictures and the documentaries. Um, our prayers and our love out to his uh, family, uh, name namely uh, daughter Sherry, who we see uh, quite often, you know, here and there, of course, an actress and a model herself. But, you know, tap in Google and, 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 and tap into the beginnings of his life and that rise uh, from a very, very meek uh, start in, in Jamaica. Uh, he's an island boy, one of my granny's favorites, and uh, he will be sorely, sorely missed. May he rest sure. in power. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. We're going to move on here to Tennessee, where the three lawmakers known as the Tennessee Three demanded stricter gun control regulations in a meeting with President Biden and Vice President Harris this week. They pressed for stronger action on gun control and were previously almost expelled for protesting against it. Now, the lawmakers disrupted House proceedings, you may remember, with a, a bullhorn in protest following the Covenant school shooting that killed three adults and three children. Local officials later reinstated Justin Pearson and Justin Jones on an interim basis, and they plan to finish their terms in a special election. Biden had previously thanked them over the phone uh, for their bravery and standing up for their communities. 
Meanwhile, around the courthouse in the city of Fulton County, uh, District Attorney Fonnie Willis has urged heightened security ahead of possible indictments in the 2020 presidential election investigation. Willis expects to announce a decision sometime this summer. You know what? No surprise here. Uh, you know, they had to tidy up, tighten up, if you will, uh, you know, in New York uh, when Trump was uh, scheduled to come to town to face so those charges there. No surprise that, you know, the state of Georgia, which has been a hotbed mm -hmm. for uh, a, 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 a couple of election uh, um, cycles, uh, is, is preparing to uh, beef up. You know, listen, not everybody from that January 6th insurrection uh, was held accountable and captured and and so those folks still might be out there and you never know what they might try. I'm just saying, but there's reason to protect you. But what a sign of the times that a, a district attorney mm -hmm. has to telegraph sort of a timeline mm -hmm. by which they're going to possibly uh, make public an indictment against uh, the former president mm -hmm. uh, in part for fear of uh, violence. Violence directed towards their office, violence uh, directed towards towards uh, peaceful protesters, right? I mean, these are the times that we are living in. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, look at some of the vitriol mm -hmm. that District Attorney Bragg uh, up in New York caught, you know, related to his indictment uh, of the former president. And so uh, this really struck me as, as, a, as a powerful sign of the times, but not in a good way. Well, I mean, I, I agree, and then, then again, I disagree. Because of the times that we're living in, you're gonna have, this is what you're gonna have to do, to, to stay on the offensive, uh, to stay proactive. Uh, because there are people out here who are a bit touched and or believe the way they believe, and they have taken to some very drastic, evil measures to uh, prove that and to show their support of the opposite. Uh, and so I think you, you don't have a choice but to lay this thing out to protect, uh, you know, the folks, uh, you know, bringing people to justice and, you know, and that community. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, you know, the district attorney is, is doing what she has to do. Mm -hmm. I don't begrudge that. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, you know, this is a, a sign of the times that, that, you know, there is so much vitriol mm -hmm. out there, you know, mm -hmm. that public servants have to fear for their lives just doing their jobs. Absolutely. It's unfortunate. All right, we're going to move on here as President Biden's domestic policy advisor, Susan Rice, is leaving the White House. Biden announcing the Biden announcing the former national security advisor and U.N. ambassador will be stepping down uh, after about two years. The president thanked Rice for her, quote, tireless efforts strengthening the Affordable Care Act and negotiating uh, lower drug prescription prices. Rice responding on Twitter saying she is grateful for the president trusting and empowering her to serve as the domestic policy advisor and she'll step out of office late May. President Joe Biden is officially in the race, saying he's ready for another term in the White House. The president posted a three-minute video on social media outlining his platform for 2024. Here's a short clip. When I ran for president four years ago, I said we're in a battle for the soul of America, and we still are. The question we're facing is whether in the years ahead we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer. I know what I want the answer to be, and I think you do too. This is not a time to be complacent. That's why I'm running for re-election. The drama of it all. <laughs> I love the soundtrack there. President okay. Biden's let's finish the job theme also makes it clear that Vice President Kamala Harris mm. will remain on the ticket in case folks didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I counted over 14 times that she was featured in this video, mm -hmm. almost three times as many times as First Lady Jill Biden. Um, I hope uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren is watching. Yeah, you know, whether you care for this ticket or not, it's coming. Uh, we talked just the other day about how some people don't want to see another, you know, Biden, uh, Trump kind of race, but it's it's sort of kind of, you know, it's it's crystallizing here. I know a lot of folks who are concerned about the age, the, the health and the well-being of uh, Biden as he'd be one of the oldest, if not the oldest, uh, running uh, for uh, re-election. 
um, but it's here and, and it's coming and, and uh, it was uh, well predicted, no, no secret here. He wasn't able to keep that under wraps uh, too well, but now uh, it will be interesting to see who's going to emerge, maybe to run against him. And then on the other side of the ticket, you know, who's not going to be afraid of the big bad wolf that being Trump to uh, run up against him because, the, the, you know, the, those GOP folks are a little divided as well. It is going to be uh, popcorn time come uh, election season as this thing plays out. Well, I think Democrats are betting it's going to be roll up your sleeves time. I think mm. a lot of folks, uh, the president uh, is going to need a lot of folks to help him get over the finish line. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. There's a quite a record uh, for this president to run on. Mm -hmm. uh, there's quite a record, uh, but it's going to be interesting to see how that message resonates. Uh, the question that we are the question that he presented is whether or not we have more freedom or less freedom, more rights or fewer rights. Certainly black folks mm. feel like we have less rights mm. and we're having less freedom and we're being uh, having having to contend with more danger. And so it's going to be interesting to see whether or not that message is powerful enough mm -hmm. to galvanize the kind of support he's going to need and, and to for, get him over the finish line. And for folks to stroll back to the polls. We shall see. All right. Now to an update. The College Board says changes will be made to its new AP African-American Studies course. This comes after critics said the agency bowed to political pressure and removed several topics from the framework, including Black Lives Matter, slavery, reparations and queer life. The course gained national attention when Governor DeSantis there in Florida said he would ban the course uh, because it pushed a political agenda. Now, it is unclear what changes to the course are or when they will be made public. Civil rights activists are seeking justice for Margaret Vinegar, a black teenage rape victim who died in prison in 1882 while her white attacker went unpunished and three innocent men were lynched. Margaret was rescued by family friends from being sexually assaulted under a Lawrence Bridge in Kansas, but was later convicted of murder and died in prison at the age of 20. Lawrence's NAACP has proposed a marker to remember Margaret's plight, which has been approved by the Historic Commission. The Lawrence City Commission is set to vote on it, with activists hoping to dedicate it on June 10th, the 141st year anniversary of the lynching. All right, so Mace, let's move into some international news now. It's kind of gruesome, though. 13 suspected gang members were beaten and burned to death by a violent mob in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, after being pulled from police custody at a traffic stop. The incident highlights the increasing lawlessness in the city, where criminal gangs have taken control of an estimated 60% of the area since uh, the president's assassination back in 2021. The suspects were believed to be members of the Craze Barre, a gang and had been headed to another area to join a group of gang members battling the police. Six more burned bodies were later found nearby. Just a gruesome, gruesome story. Yeah, and part of the question is what is the international community going to do to respond mm -hmm. to this? Mm -hmm. You know, if this was a, a terrorist group mm -hmm. and essentially what they're doing is uh, in Haiti terrorism. Is, is terrorism. Mm -hmm. They're terrorizing the local folks. The gangs have taken control of this area, sixty upwards of 60%. If this was any other, you know, major city, in some other part of the world, Europe. you know, would we be sitting by idly, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and don't think that what's happening in Haiti can't migrate to other areas uh, in the Caribbean. Yeah, we, we've seen the help when we want to help, whether it be Ukraine and as of late, uh, Sudan. Haiti has been in crisis for a very long time. And it is one of those areas, one of those islands where it is a part of the, cre uh, the, the cradle of, of civilization, in particular, black culture, the, the, the food, the, the culture. Uh, there have been some amazing uh, Haitian Americans who have poured into the landscape of, of America here. And so, you know, like a lot of black uh, islands and countries, uh, they are owed by us because we've taken so much uh, from them. So, yeah, you're right. I'm hoping this maybe uh, sparks uh, our folks here uh, stateside to help along with what's happening there in Haiti. Yeah. Well, actor and singer Tyrese Gibson has called for media, civil rights leaders and black fathers mm. to attend his custody battle against his ex-wife and mother of his child, Samantha Lee, in Atlanta. Tyrese accuses Judge Kevin M. Farmer of being racist and referring to Lee as a derogatory term in front of his attorney. 
He wants the judge removed from the case and wants media outlets to attend and record all proceedings. Tyrese has also asked civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump, Atlanta civil rights leader Andrew Young, and Martin Luther King III for their support. Hmm. You know, um, yeah, we, you know, we need to support one another. You know, but there's been some, you know, questionable actions and things that Tyrese has done in the past during that marriage. You know, it was it was a it was a highly publicized marriage. You know, you know, people put a lot out on social media. So I do remember a lot of the ups and downs, more downs of that marriage before they decided to split. And that custody battle has been ongoing for a very long time. I think that little girl might be 33 years old by now. Um, and and that's not you know to make fun and, and make light of those these type of situations. But this has been going on for. For a very long time. So, you know, there's always three sides to the story. It's going to be his side, uh, the ex-wife, mom's side, and, and the truth. And um, I don't know. I just, so I, you know, the idea of supporting, yes, but you got to get the facts straight and clear. And I don't know sometimes if, if Tyrese it could be that credible to just jump on board mm -hmm. and say, hey, this is really what's happening in this situation. Yeah, you and know? I, th I, th I think it's important for us to zoom out because there are a lot of black fathers mm -hmm. out there who have really negative experiences mm -hmm. in family court. Mm -hmm. uh, part of what Tyrese was calling attention to was the fact that the judge referred to his wife uh, with, or the mother of his, his child using a derogatory term. Where is that okay? How is that okay, right? And you know, um, but do we know that though? Is what I'm saying. As far as you know, I'm not. I'm not. You know, denying or not saying that that couldn't be true. But I mean, that's 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 pretty. You know, that's a pretty tough it, uh, accusation. It is. It is. Uh, for it is. a judge to call somebody out of their name like that. So it I'm is. just. You know, let's and, just. And I don't know many people that would take on a judge while while they're in proceedings. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, if we're just taking his word for it, mm -hmm. you know, um, you know, that's a serious issue. Yeah. And certainly Tyrese would not be the first. Mm -hmm. um, hopefully he would be the last, but he's yeah. not going to be the first black man in family court having a negative yeah. encounter with a judge um, or a judge, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, speaking uh, poorly uh, to the folks involved with the case, especially when they happen to be black parents. And so I'm just saying it's bigger than Tyrese in my view. Sure. We hope for the best, especially for the well-being of the child. Yeah. That's who's truly important. All right, up next, displaced black and brown families in Palm Springs needing help. That's right. We'll discuss what's happening in Florida and what you can do to help those in need. You're watching Foxhole's Black Report. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Foxhole's Whack Report. Well, former residents of a Native American reservation in Palm Springs, known as Section 14, are seeking more than $2.3 billion in reparations from the city for being displaced during the 1960s. So this comes after an apology by the Palm Springs City Council in 2021 for its decision to displace them. Now the reservation was home to black and Mexican families and the California Statewide Reparations Task Force is evaluating how the state can atone for policies such as an intimate domain and redlining despite complications due to ownership of the land. Some residents believe it is important for the city to make amends. And joining us now is civil rights attorney and the lead attorney for the Section 14 survivors and descendants, Areva Martin. Welcome to the to Fox Souls Black Report. <laughs> Hello, my friend. Good to see you. <laughs> Good to see you always. And so, Areva, tell us, when most people think about the fight for reparations, they probably don't think about vacation destinations like Palm Springs. How did you learn about this case and what inspired you to represent the plaintiffs? Yeah, it's a great question, Nee. Uh, most people think of Palm Springs, they think of glitz and glamour and this exotic vacation spot in the desert. But many people don't know that Palm Springs has had and continues in some ways to have this very dark and sordid past. And that was a past where they burned out and demolished 
thousands of homes that were homes to black and brown residents who came into the city seeking a new beginning. Many traveling from the South to escape the Jim Crow laws of the South only to learn that California had its own uh, form of Jim Crowism in terms of racially restrictive covenants that prevented black and brown people from living in neighborhoods with white people. Uh, I learned about Section 14 through an advocate uh, who was involved in the Bruce's Beach matter uh, involving Manhattan Beach, California. And like so many residents in California, I was incredulous. I didn't even know that African-Americans lived in Palm Springs. Mm. Uh, and little did I know, as so many other people don't know, there was a vibrant and thriving black community in Palm Springs in the 50s and 60s. And these were the black folks who built this town, who made it the uh, you know, the city, the destination for the rich and famous that it is today. They were the carpenters, the uh, nannies, the cooks, the chauffeurs, the folks who catered to the rich and famous who made Palm Springs their second home. Wow, such rich history and heartbreak all in the in the same thought. Ms. Martin, tell us, you know, more about the $500,000 contract the Palm Springs City Council is considering to develop uh, as far as a reparations program is concerned. Do, do the black and brown families you represent see this as a stall tactic or meaningful step toward delivering justice? Well, from our perspective, we have not presented to the Palm Springs City Council our reparations plan. So anything mm -hmm. that the city is doing right now is not uh, with the blessings of the survivors and the descendants. And the reality is the oppressed doesn't get to tell uh, you know, the folks that they, the oppressor, I should say, doesn't get to tell the oppressed mm -hmm. what making them whole should look like. We have been engaged in a series of meetings over the last year uh, designed to develop a reparations plan that we will present to the city in June. So any plans that the city have right now for developing anything uh, is, I'd call it good public policy, but it is not reparations because the survivors and descendants, the thousands that I represent have not presented this city with a comprehensive reparations program. Uh, like I said, that's going to be done in June. So any efforts afoot by the city at this point, let's just call it good old public policy because all cities need affordable housing, all cities need investments in its low-income communities, but that is not, by any definition, reparations. Ariva, in November, your law firm filed a claim with the city of Palm Springs seeking between $400 million and $2 billion for your <laughs> clients. How did your team calculate the economic harm done to these families? And what advice would you offer to you know, other advocates across the country that are uh, leading their own reparations efforts? Well, first, I would say we brought in a uh, dream team, a team of experts who've been working in the field of racial uh, justice, working in the field of reparations, and an economist. Dr. Julianne Malvo, one of the nation's leading labor economists, is one of the consultants that's helping the families that I represent. Dr. Malvo did a preliminary, a preliminary harms assessment. And sadly, the city had never done that. If you think about a tornado, you think about an earthquake or any kind of natural disaster, the first thing the government does is it goes in and does an assessment of the harm that was done by that natural disaster. Uh, the demolition and burning out of these families happened 60 years ago. And despite the six decades, the city had never done that kind of harm uh, assessment. But Dr. Malvo did it. She looked at the present value of homes uh, in Palm Springs today. If you were to try to purchase a home in Palm Springs, you would have to pay over a million three hundred thousand dollars uh, to purchase even a single family home in that community. So when you think about what this community lost, it wasn't just the present value of homes, it was all of the generational wealth. It was the opportunity to build generational wealth. It was the lost economic opportunities. There were businesses uh, and cultural institutions on Section 14. All of those were upended. All of those were destroyed because of the intentional racist actions by the city. Hmm. So $2 billion in some ways, I, I recognize it sounds like a big number, but when you think about what over 6,000 residents lost, uh, that number doesn't even come close to being able to compensate them for not only the economic loss, but the racial trauma that these families experience that still has reverberations throughout that Palm Springs community today. And 60 years ago, it, it might as well you know, have been yesterday. So with all of that in mind, uh, Ms. Martin, California's uh, reparations task force is expected to deliver uh, final recommendations 
uh, on this uh, legislation as how they're going to address, you know, this this over 300 years of, of harm via slavery and racism. How does this fight for the uh, reparations on the state level? Does it help or hurt uh, your particular case there in Palm Springs? Yeah, it's a positive movement that we are seeing all around the country, not just the state of California that's studying reparations for all of the African-Americans who live in the state, but we see San Francisco mm -hmm. has submitted a reparations uh, proposal to the county board of supervisors in San Francisco, cities like Sacramento, uh, Boston, St. Louis, Missouri, uh, cities all over this country are recognizing that they don't have to wait for the passage of H.R. 40. They don't have to wait for the federal government to act. Local governments uh, can take action. They can stand up. They can acknowledge the role that they played in dispossessing African-Americans uh, decades ago. And some of these atrocities are still happening, uh, even as we speak. I, I'll say happening in real time. And need to address your question about advocates around the country. I think what advocates need to do is, is learn about the efforts that are taking place from Bruce's Beach to Section 14 Palm Springs uh, to San Francisco, what's happening in California, because there's so much to learn. I've learned so much from what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and so much of my work has been inspired by um, one of my Harvard Law professors, Charles Ogletree, and the late Johnny Cochran, who went into mm -hmm. Tulsa. Uh, in the early 2000s to fight for reparations for those families that had been burned out as a result of Greenwood. So there's inspiration in the work that has been done by pioneering civil rights attorneys uh, who've been at this for decades. Mm -hmm. uh, Ariva, uh, at a recent task force meeting, California State Senator Steve Bradford, he said it'll be an uphill fight to get the legislature to seriously engage with recommendations. Do you agree? And, and if not, what can our soulmates do to make a difference? I think it's going to be a, a battle, but nothing that's worth fighting for comes easily. Mm. And the reparations task force and individuals around the state of California recognize uh, that this is going to be a battle. But look how far we have come. Reparations used to be considered a fringe concept in the 60s and 70s. You know, that was something that those people on the fringes talked about. Now it is a conversation that's happening all over this country, including in one of the largest states in the country, California. Uh, what everyone can do is get involved. They can go to that Reparations Task Force website and show its support. I know there are over 150 organizations that have already signed on to the California effort. And likewise, in Palm Springs, we have been seeking the support of legacy organizations like the NAACP, the National Urban League, and others. Uh, the issue of reparations is going to be an issue decided by the people. Hmm. The elected officials that will vote in California, those that will vote at the city council level in Palm Springs, they serve at the leisure of the voters. Mm -hmm. And so it's up to the voters to express their support both at the California level and I'm asking voters in Palm Springs, allies and supporters uh, to stand up with us and to stand and in solidarity well. with us as we seek to make these families whole. Indeed, Ariva Martin, civil rights attorney, getting into that good trouble. That's Thank right. you so much for your time today. <laughs> we must have you back, uh, especially to follow up uh, on this particular case. We appreciate you so much. Thank you for your time today. Thanks to both of you as well. Indeed. All right, we're going to stick with reparations for a moment, but let's take it to St. Louis, where the commission held its first public hearing to gather input from activists and residents on compensating black residents for the damage caused by slavery and discrimination. Now, the reparations commission will spend the next year gathering public input, drafting recommendations for policymakers, and then releasing them for feedback. Mayor Tashora Jones appointed the commission back in December to dig into the city's racial history, the present day consequences and purpose uh, for a plan of reparations. Now over the pond to the UK where British aristocrats from the group heirs of slavery are calling on the UK government to apologize and offer restorative justice to the descendants of the slave trade. The group says Britain has never apologized for its role in the transatlantic slave trade and its after effects still harm people's lives today. The UK government compensated former slave owners and traders, not the freed slaves. The group aims to support reparative justice campaigns, joining Caribbean nations led by CARICOM, who are calling for reparations. 
Last year, the Netherlands apologized and created a $212 million fund to tackle the legacy of slavery. $212 million. Yeah, and you know, listen, and, and bringing back in the conversation we just had with Ms. Martin, reparations uh, have been around for ages, all right? I just feel like when the conversation is about reparations for black people, mm. something goes awry, mm. something something falls off, something, you know, it, it's like, as, as if our experience doesn't, is, is not quantified or, or something to that regard. You have, you know, the Holocaust folks who, you know, still to this day uh, receive plenty of benefits and sympathy and support to Hiroshima. Uh, back in the 1940s. Uh, a lot of those survivors received uh, money from uh, the U.S., uh, maybe about a little over a million apiece in, in, in the yen. Uh, our Native American uh, brothers and sisters, even though their fight, the fight is still uh, ongoing, there are still laws and policies that have been put in that place where you can't touch that reservation, you know, and they have been given at least, you know, some of that land back when you talk mm -hmm. about the casinos and the development and stuff like that. Why, when it comes to talking about reparations for black folks, it becomes a problem, an issue, I, I, I a think, rub. I think our soulmates know why. And, <laughs> and, and let's also keep in mind, it's about beginning to repair the harm. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can ever really repair the or harm. Or put a price tag on right? it. Right, right. I mean, you, we just heard Ariva Martin sort of talk about the, tra the trauma, the generational trauma that mm -hmm. ensues. And so, you know, uh, this movement is, is raging and mm -hmm. will continue. Oh, yes. All right, coming up, a scam artist plays a con game on Christians. That's right. We'll tell you all about the black church that's now out of $33,000. That's right. We'll tell you all about it here. You're oh. watching Fox Soul's Black Report. Lord have mercy. We welcome you back, soulmates, to Foxhole's Black Report. Beware of church scammers. Mm -hmm. Former Miramar insurance agent Marcus Moon has agreed to pay a civil money penalty for targeting primarily African-American Christian investors and losing over $31,000 of their invested funds. This, ha funds this happened down in Florida. That's right. Moon registered increased financial strategies using his home as the business address in 2020 later changing the company's name to INC Financial Strategies and Faith Financial Strategies while scamming black church communities. He has agreed to pay a settlement of $31,000 and uh, a disgorgement of $3,000 plus $158 in interest, but has not admitted or denied the charges against him. Now, Moon now resides in Falls Church, Virginia, with his wife. Red flag number one, mm -hmm. um, that pinstripe suit should have been a, <laughs> <laughs> a fair warning. And then two... Not the uh, pinstripe. Yes. And then two, you know, using his home address. Like, if you're going to come... You know, even a scammer knows to find something sort of kind of official when you get the scammy little things via your email. The scammers at least try to make it look official by stealing, you know, the company's letterhead or something. But come on, bro. This is just, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Church is supposed to be a place of restoration mm -hmm. and healing and, and rebirth. Refuge. And refuge and safety. Mm -hmm. And for things like this to continue to happen, it is just disgusting. I mean, I'm just going to say the quiet part out loud. What? Shame on him. Okay. Shame on him, and right? That suit. Did you see I, the suit? That's I, 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 got to I say. saw the suit, but separate and apart from the suit, mm -hmm. in 2020, when all of us were trying to make it make sense, when we were, you know, afraid and we didn't know where this pandemic was taking us, mm -hmm. this guy was conniving, you know, and taking advantage of people mm -hmm. at a time where folks were really vulnerable, mm -hmm. right? And a number of us, you know, we have, you know, parents and grandparents, you know, who um, spend a lot, invest a lot of time and energy in the church community um, and one of our worst fears is that someone like this guy might take advantage of them and so shame on him all right another example of uh, bad churching a white Oklahoma pastor is refusing to apologize for uh, resurfaced blackface photos an old photo of pastor Sherman Jacks in blackface look at this mm. has surfaced online. are you serious and <laughs> church members said 
he isn't apologizing for his past. Jax, who has been the uh, Matoka Baptist Church mm -hmm. uh, pastor for over a decade, claimed he painted his body the darkest shade possible and wore an afro so he could look like the late musician Ray Charles. Ray Charles will look like that. He stated, quote, I love Ray Charles. I love his music. There wasn't anything racial about it. I was trying to portray Ray Charles. That's the end of that quote. Photos of Jax in blackface and dressed as a Native American have also uh, gone viral. There are plenty of other ways, sir, and I use the, the term sir very loosely, to appreciate uh, you know, your favorite artist. There is All nothing, kinds of different there ways. There is nothing honorable about that. Mm. He didn't look nothing like Ray Charles. Uh, that is that is absolutely terrible. It's offensive. Mm. And when people try to act like they don't know what blackface is and, oh, I didn't mean any harm and I was just dressing up, like, that's not just dressing up, dude. Yes. You, don't, you, you don't fool us. Since the invention of Google, which was not around back in my day, so maybe you might, you know, show just a tad bit grace, but since the invention of Google, there's no excuse for you but, not to know. But With Courtney, something like blackface, how... how how uh, horrible, you know, blackface, um, you know, is and what it is and, and why it's so offensive. How do you not know that in 2023? But Courtney, with all of this information and technology e at your fingertips. Even, let's take technology out of it. Let's take Google out of it. There are these things called books, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. there, there, there's no, there are oral histories. Yeah. You know, there's no reason why, you know, um, someone should not know how offensive blackface is. And I doubt, e even, if, even if we wanted to take his word for it that he didn't know, mm -hmm. you're telling me that everybody on that stage didn't know and nobody at that party knew that, that everybody just thought that this was just fun and games. I agree you with know? you, but now, instead of maybe having to go search for it and dig for it, you know, the decimal system, whatever that thing was at the library, we had to look up the, the information is right there at your fingertips as far as technology. That's all I'm saying. It's an easy find. Uh, you know, if, 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 you, you know, you want to know. Obviously, these folks don't care. And so that's why his apology, uh, you know, or he hasn't apologized, but that's why his stance is still as is, because he doesn't care to know. This Oklahoma pastor, if he knew, if he knew about blackface and how offensive that is, the history of it, as well as he knows the word, mm -hmm. right, then he wouldn't have been doing yeah. and dressing up like that. Well, he doesn't care. So there that is. Moving along, 73 bodies were found on land owned by controversial pastor McKenzie in Kenya. He was arrested after telling his followers to starve themselves to death in order to meet Jesus. Sadly, officials expect the death toll to grow. The country's president spoke out on the recent discovery. ...use religion to advance their heinous acts. People like Mr. Mackenzie are using religion to do exactly the same thing. The Kenya Red Cross Society says 112 people have been reported missing in the coastal town of Malindi. That's where the pastor's main church was. The pastor was arrested earlier this month after being accused of starting a cult but has been released on bond. Uh, to all of our soulmates in Kenya, be careful. Yeah, you know, listen, it, it, could you imagine the, the suffering? It takes a very, very long time, um, in most cases, with relatively health folks, for you to starve yourself to death. Now, you can't go without water. You know, if you deny yourself water, you might be quickening that process, if you will. But, but food, it, it takes a moment. So could you imagine how long those folks were, were starving themselves and suffering um, it is just a, a, an absolute uh, atrocity. And, uh, you know, I hope uh, Kenyan officials plan to, you know, uh, take measures and, and prosecute this particular uh, pastor. So him and his influence uh, mm -hmm. cannot, uh, you know, influence people to this to this to this effect. This and, is just yeah. horrible. And, and what a gross perversion of the word. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, really using and people's faith time, against them. You know, we see, for example, you know, uh, folks that fast mm -hmm. routinely. Mm -hmm. You know, that's nothing unusual, even, you know, in my own family. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, but to take, you know, a, a tool uh, up for spiritual growth like fasting and to pervert it and to turn it into starving for Jesus, mm -hmm. essentially, mm -hmm. um, is unconscionable. Mm -hmm. It's terrible, but it, you know, it's good to see that the Kenyan president is speaking out about this and, and uh, putting people 
uh, on on notice that mm -hmm. uh, that that he's using religion um, in ways that. Uh, are not helpful and are intended to hurt people. Mm -hmm. Let's shift gears here. Uh, Backstage side, music stars Usher and Roberta Flack are getting honorary degrees. Berkeley College of Music, very prestigious Berkeley College of Music, announced the performers will receive honorary doctorates. At this year's commencement ceremony, this happens next month, the musicians will be able to speak to the class of 2023 at the ceremony after being honored with a reception and musical tribute uh, to their work. This is amazing, Nicordelai. This is incredible. Look at these two greats, two greats. I mean, this, yes. is, this, is, this is what an, an intergenerational pick mm -hmm. uh, for the Berkeley College of Music. Uh, you know, Usher is just continuing to soar, he and is. it's just really great to see him just maturing as an artist yeah. and also getting well-deserved recognition, but alongside one of the greats, Roberta Flack, yeah. you know, who's been ill in recent years, mm -hmm. uh, but but what a, a distinguished achievement. Now, that is a doctorate well-deserved. Yeah, and I'm hoping, um, you know, she's able to push through and, and physically uh, attend that commencement. Uh, it is absolutely uh, amazing. Berkeley College of Music is a very prestigious mm -hmm. um, uh, college of music. A lot of times they're rival Juilliard, they rival each other. Juilliard, who's the best, who's the best? Quincy Jones, Bradford Marcellus, DJ Khaled, Shaka Khan, Wycliffe Jean, Sheila E., Esperanza uh, Spaulding, uh, Tiwa Savage, she's an uh, Afrobeats uh, artist, uh, Roy Hargrove, the late Roy Hargrove, broke my heart when we lost him, and Layla Hathaway, just some of the African Americans who have been honored uh, by Berkeley uh, School of Music. So there you have it, it's a, it's a rich legacy, and uh, welcome to it, Usher and Miss Flack. I feel like Miss Roberta Flack has been long overdue, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, well they certainly know good talent, they know black excellence That's for sure. Right. Still ahead, Night is calling out Uncle Snoop all the way from the jail cell. Man, Suge don't stop, does he? Find out what Suge says Snoop is doing illegally when we return. You are watching Fox Soul's Black Report. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Well, former First Lady Michelle Obama sits down with Oprah Winfrey for an honest conversation in their new Netflix special, The Light We Care. Mm -hmm. The event was filmed on the final stop of the former First Lady's book tour uh, for her 2022 bestseller, The Light We Carry, overcoming uh, in uncertain times. Viewers will get a front row seat for Mrs. Obama's candid discussion on topics including her time in the White House, her personal life, romance, and social issues. The 80-minute special premieres April 25th, and I'm excited about it. You know, I'm still hung up on how she said she didn't like <laughs> Barack for 10 years. For I'm, 10 I'm, years. I'm only eight months into this thing. And yeah. I know for me, I feel like personal downtime is 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 a wonderful thing because you do need a break. Yeah. I know you're a team, you're a unit and you dwell together, but you need a break. Yeah. And I think uh, Mrs. Obama spoke to all of that. You know how you how, how she got lost, you know, in in supporting what he was doing and, and that struggle and that battle to maintain who she was in the midst of his rising career. It's a fascinating read, and I'm looking forward to the discussion. I mean, I've seen her do a number of interviews while promoting mm -hmm. uh, the special that's coming out and, pr and promoting the book. Mm -hmm. And you know, I, I'm just taken aback at how candid she is. Very right? candid. Um, you know, for somebody who's been on the world stage mm -hmm. for a number of years, you know, sometimes there's a veneer. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's this um, unwillingness to, mm -hmm. to to share too much or share at all, and mm -hmm. and you know she seems to really just be you know out there saying this is who I am. Yeah. She's, she knows who she is. Um, she's done the work uh, to you know address you know some of the issues in uh, in their marriage mm -hmm. and in their family. Um, and she's been so generous with sharing the wisdom with yeah. so many. And so to sit down with Oprah Winfrey for 80 minutes and just, you know, Put pour into there. all of us. Right. Um, right. Based upon what she's learned. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be tuning into that. Netflix yeah, because, special. you know, on social media, all we just see are the highlights. I'm not just talking about the Obamas. I'm talking about, you know, married folks, folks, mm -hmm. period. We just get the highlights and we get the highlights that folks want us to see. We get the Instagram yeah, version. Yeah, but uh, Miss Michelle is giving us everything and we love it. Yeah. 
Well, Quavo, who was with Takeoff the night he was killed, is honoring the late rapper with a limited edition hoodie. The Legends and Quavo Forever Takeoff hoodie is being sold for $140 on the Legends website with all proceeds, all proceeds, going to the Rocket Foundation. The foundation supports programs that use community-based solutions to prevent gun violence. Hancho Day, a celebrity charity football game scheduled for April 29th, will also donate proceeds to the foundation. The event will be held at Burkmar High School in Georgia and include 2 Chains and Gucci Mane and other celebrities. Mm. Free tickets are available, so go check that out. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it, it's hard to, to move on, you know, without your loved ones, especially when the loss is so, you know, unexpected and, and tragic. I'm, I'm still dealing from the, you know, tragic sudden loss of my grandmother and uncle uh, from, from a house fire, but it, it appears as though Cuervo and, and Takeoff, even though there, there, there may be a little rub there still, um, you know, they're, they're doing their best with moving on, uh, continuing uh, to live uh, in the legacy. Um, and uh, it's just really, really good to see, yeah. to see that, it, because it's tough, it's gotta be tough. And to see the power of community, you know, I mean, you know, healing is made just a little mm -hmm. bit easier mm -hmm. uh, when we do it together, and mm -hmm. so it's great to see them finding creative ways mm -hmm. to, to honor Takeoff, mm -hmm. um, but to also sort of come together in his spirit and community. Yeah, and not Takeoff, the, the other member, the, 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 I can't recall the other member's name, I didn't mean Takeoff, I meant, well, we'll think about his name. Offset. Thank, okay. thank oh, yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> Offset. Yeah, there's yeah. a little, maybe a little rub there as far as healing is concerned. Yeah. But it's it's just good to see them try to and continue to, you know, peacefully move on. It was such a tragic loss. Yeah, thank you so much for that. All right, Suge Knight has accused Snoop Dogg of committing a crime to acquire ownership of Death Row Records. Knight questions whether Snoop is the true owner and claims the label's sale was illegal. He says he doubts Snoop's claim of ownership and alleges that Harris committed bankruptcy fraud. Knight says he and his lawyers only discovered the fraud a week prior to a phone call with TMZ. Snoop acquired Death Row Records in a deal with MNRK Music Group back in February of 2022, but the terms were undisclosed. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, this is just... He could have a point, though. You know, it could be true. I, I just think when you get to be like Snoop Dogg level, mm -hmm. uh, the the team that you have working for you mm -hmm. to evaluate every deal that you enter Knows into yeah. um, is probably turning over you know every stone mm -hmm. to make sure that there are no surprises mm -hmm. uh, like this. And so you know I don't know what information Suge Knight's getting in jail <laughs> that Snoop Dogg doesn't have on the outside. And, of jail. and and Snoop Dogg is claiming it, wearing it, walking in it. He's got some great new young artists on the precipice of of, of breaking breaking wide and they sound good and they look good so he's doing his thing with death row for sure yeah well uh praz michelle uh one-third of the fujis reportedly admitted to voluntarily assisting the fbi with china's attempts to deport wu wengui michelle is currently on trial for charges related to his alleged involvement with malaysian financier jeho lo who is accused of financing $4.5 billion or finessing $4.5 billion from Malaysia's 1MDB Sovereign Wealth Fund. Michelle admitted in court to being a, quote, celebrity surrogate for Lowe, who compensated him $20 million in 2012 to help him get a photo with Obama. Michelle denied acting as a foreign agent of China and claimed he acted in the country's best interest. Yeah, this hit uh, social media and it, you know, what? folks just blew up all the memes. You know how we do <laughs> when we when we get some information and, and the way we spin it and talk about it on social media. I'm talking about the culture. Uh, my guy, you know, I love me some uh, 50 Cent. He smells so good. Um, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here. Uh, he said, I knew dude was a snitch. You know, that's what 50 is saying. And, and a lot of people across social media are echoing that sentiment. So, um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of this trial. But when Prize, if he's able to come back to the culture, he's got a lot of explaining to do. It's Folks just, don't like a snitch. Well, I mean, it's just really strange that this information is coming out in the trial. And, mm -hmm. you know, how often do we hear about FBI informants yeah. being named publicly it's in this way? It was probably safer for it to come out in the trial than to somebody on the street. 
to find out about it. I don't know about this. There's more here. We got to keep digging. Sounds like it. Up next, our favorite segment, Black Excellence. And it's all about black boy joy, uh, magic, and more. You're going to want to hear about this little young man right here. That's right. We'll introduce you to the nine-year-old genius who's making headlines. You're watching Foxhole's Black Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back to Foxhole's Black Report. Nine-year-old child genius David Balagoon continues to shock the world with his incredible genius. Yeah, now he shocked the minds at NASA as one of the youngest high school graduates ever in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. NASA invited David for a visit soon after graduating. In his orange NASA spacesuit, David watched from the flight control room while a mock-up sound check was done, which is a process uh, that's done when astronauts are about to take off. At that point, this child prodigy started talking about something the scientists had never heard of before, Super Saturn. The NASA folks had to go and Google it. <laughs> mm -hmm. David has his eyes set on being wow. an astrophysicist, chemist, engineer, and software designer. But before that, Aww. he wants to go to Harvard. That is amazing. All right, Tyra Perry of Illinois and Sharonda McDonald Kelly of the Michigan State University. Which, which university? The Michigan State <laughs> University will meet in Game Three in a Game Three series or series uh, this weekend. That is believed to be the first time two black female coaches have squared off in Power Five softball. So it's a three-game series. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, Perry said that she sees the moment as a sign of progress, but was disappointed it took this long to happen. Mm -hmm. She said there are plenty of black female head coaches and assistant coaches ready to make the jump to a Power Five program. The milestone comes as the sport enjoys increasing popularity. Attendance at the Women's College World Series in Oklahoma City last spring set numerous records, mm -hmm. including averaging 1.6 million viewers on wow. ESPN. Wow, Perry and McDonald Kelly happen to be very good friends. Their families know each other, and so it's gonna be like some friendly competition this weekend. Good luck to both, but but more importantly to my girl at Michigan State uh -huh. uh, University. But this really puts an exclamation point on uh, women's sports, collegiate sports yeah. uh, in particular. You know, people are still reeling over that big LSU win and, and all the, positive fallout from that, all the money them young girls are making now. It's absolutely fabulous to see folks really, really starting to support. And it's fabulous to see that nine-year-old genius, <laughs> you know, really just being supported by his family and um, and, and so beginning smart. to live his dreams. I mean, mm -hmm. we're already starting to see him see him soar, right? Yeah. And, you know, my dad was a chemist, okay. right? And so it's not often that you hear, you know, black kids anywhere saying, mm -hmm. hey, I want to, you know, be a chemist, an astrophysicist. And so you go, boy. That's and, right. And, and, and go all the way. That's right. For, the for these stories and more, uh, make sure you access Fox Soul's video on demand on any of our partners. You can even access past shows and other uh, content. And don't forget to download the Fox Soul app. You'll find that it is uh, free and you can keep up with us all day, every day. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Courtney Hicks. And I'm Nicordelai Corte. On behalf of the entire team here at Fox Hills Black Report, stay lifted. And stay safe. We'll see you soon. All Take right. care.